so Christmas spirits the I don't know what an insert Christmas opener here I, I, I'm not Aaron is still very uncomfortable with the concept of okay. Christmas as a whole hey I'm at least in my double digits of celebrating Christmas now didn't celebrate it until I was 19 because I was dating a girl who really liked Christmas but now I'm married to that girl and we're all very <laughs> we're all very grateful we're all so grateful to her <laughs> Because the chip in your shoulder you carried about Christmas was burdening us all. It's still there. I just have to be careful how I express it. (laughs) It's burdening us to this day. That's why we're doing this. Yeah, I'm I'm less obnoxious with my dislike of Christmas. I will definitely say that. It was definitely, uh, you know, you have that that looking back at yourself. uh, You know, to succeed, you must always be killing who you were, I'm sure. some. I don't remember who's supposed to have said that. It's some fake stoic quote from the internet. I do it every day when I delete my old Facebook memories, and that is definitely like cringy stuff Aaron said when he was 16. I'm like, oh, oh. Like, you can hate things about Christmas. You don't need to crap on everybody's parade about Christmas, 16-year-old Aaron. What are you doing, 16-year-old Aaron? It's okay. We were all being, we were all being edgy and loud. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, hating Christmas. Very ed- much edge. Very based. And other words that I think are a sure sign of a room temperature IQ. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Happy Hanukkah, etc., etc. onwards. Yes, yes. Um, to all of you who celebrate any and all of these things. And what better way to celebrate Christmas in a podcasty form uh, than by uh, accidentally continuing our ongoing discussion of horror? Christmas has stretched itself all the way back to Halloween. Well, now we're just dragging Halloween's corpse into Christmas, which Halloween would be okay with anyway. Let's go. I mean, we're going to talk about two... Two movies that uh, honestly I didn't really intend to have a shared theme when we were when we were discussing them. Uh, I, if anything, thought they'd just be kind of fun movies because I hadn't seen one of them before, and the other one is one of my favorite Christmas movies. Um, but Home Alone and Krampus. Mm-hmm. And I had the opposite thing where I've seen Home Alone many times and had never seen Krampus. And I think with the with the rise of violent Christmas movies coming out every single year at this point, I know this year we have yet another movie called Violent Night. It's not the first one. Uh, Neither is Silent Night as a horror movie. That's been done several times. Pretty sure that's why they switched it to Violent Night. Uh, We're not reviewing that today. We're going for ones we know are fun, but with the rise of a violent Christmas, anti, what do you call it? Counter-programming Christmas movies. Counter-programming? This is what we're doing. Counter-program, okay. Industry talk. Counter-programming is the habit for some studios to decide to release a movie that is very opposite whatever the current season is Ah. as a way of hitting everyone who hates that particular season. For Or maybe that's not exactly the the point. Or, for instance, if like they know a big Marvel superhero movie is coming out, they'll try to put out something that's very much the opposite of that to catch anybody who isn't going to see that one. Marvel movies are tricky now because they're so all-encompassing, but say... If you have, if it's, you know, uh, Valentine's Day and you've got all these sappy romantic movies, there will be one or two huge action flicks that are coming, that will come out around Valentine's Day for contrast or for irony. I remember watching Pride and Prejudice and Zombies for Valentine's Day. An excellent time. Still actually a great romance movie. Worked, it did both, which was really fun. Um, but there's always this, this sense of you can counter program. You will try to hit the side of the audience that isn't going to watch 
the type of movie that you would expect to watch that weekend. Does this explain the absolutely insane release dates that movies like Alvin and the Chipmunks series have chosen? Like, I know they tried when, to compete with Star out? Wars 7. <laughs> they released oh, an Jesus. Alvin and the Chipmunks movie the same day as The Force Awakens. And it, Okay, that that has got to have been a mistake. <laughs> but, or maybe they were trying to hit all the younger children who weren't going to be old enough to see Star Wars. But everybody can see Star Wars, so what's... Yeah, what's okay, so that's not counter-programming. That was just stupidity. Good to know. Um, okay, so just I just looked it up to see if I could get a better example of counter-programming. For instance, in a year of like very dark, macho superhero movies, we got Mamma Mia. So like that way, it's all the women who weren't going to see dark, macho superhero movies could go to the theater and see Mamma Mia instead. And because Mamma Mia was the only one of its kind, it really stood out. So it can work. It can be really effective. Sometimes it bombs really hard. Kind of depends. Yeah, I could see that. Though on the other hand, I think that like I'm not. I'm not sure. This this is as good a chance as any to bring it up. We'll, we'll come back to fetching in a second. But mm-hmm. I, I kind of I'll introduce my idea here just because it's it's relevant. That I, I'm not sure that uh, movies like Krampus or. Va- Certainly not the Violent Night that's been released recently. Uh, I haven't seen the other one. But a lot of the Christmas horror movies I've seen, or the edgy quote-unquote Christmas movies I've seen, I think there's sort of a fake edge. So if I don't talk about that later, bring it up. But I think they're actually far less transgressive than they pretend to be. I think that, I would agree. Um, oh, good, good. So we're not going to fight. you Because they, they want to subvert it, but then still fulfill it, right? Like Deadpool is a perfect example of that's a movie that went out of its way to subvert a lot of what we know about superhero movies, but at the very end still fulfilled everything you want in a superhero movie, still had the kind of superhero arc. They just did it very tongue in cheek mm-hmm. and that kept it enjoyable. It allowed the edge lords to enjoy something without, without losing their street cred. <laughs> I hated that whole sentence. <laughs> everything about that sentence I hated. But that's, I mean, that's the, the genius of, of movies like that is that they can go in pretending they hate the thing that they're using to market it and then still fulfill everything you want. Well, I certainly think that's going to be true in our discussion of Krampus. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll bring that into the, the first discussion we're having of Home Alone. Uh, if you haven't noticed by the title, this is a two-parter. Uh, so we will be we will be kind of dividing these after we finish Home Alone. But before we even get into Home Alone, do you have anything to fetch about? Well, somehow, you, usually in December, things wind down a little bit. For Hollywood, we tend to go completely dead most of the month of December and, and half of the month of January. And the first thing that kicks us back into life is like Sundance, um, which I think is usually late January. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but for some reason this year, I am wildly busy. Um, Aaron had to deal with me complaining and late today, uh, because this is my fourth, like, thing I scheduled out of six things I scheduled, uh, because we have an upcoming writer's strike, potentially. Every three years, the WGA, the Writers Guild, um, the Union for Writers in Hollywood, gets to renegotiate their contracts and when they do so there's always a chance that they're going to strike this year the chance of striking is very very high because this year the thing we're upset about uh is streaming rights i don't know if any of y'all remember uh scarlett johansson being really pissed off at disney about 
what happened with um, Black Widow. Yeah. But what happened with Black Widow was that they decided to release it on Disney Plus and in theaters at the same time, therefore strongly undercutting the box office, the theater box office. The reason Scarlett Johansson's upset about that, and the reason most of us are upset about things like that, is because a lot of folks, not just writers, but actors, a lot of folks, we get back end. If the movie does well, we get a bonus but the bonus is dependent on the box office. So if our box office hits a certain point, we get a bonus. It's our incentive to make the movie really, really good. So when studios undercut that, when they decide to release it on streaming at the same time as they do in theaters, they are deliberately undercutting the potential theater box office while boosting their streaming sales. And right now there is no system in place for us to make any back end um, in streaming. Because a lot of streaming sites, including Netflix, do not release numbers. They actually won't tell you how many people watch their show. They'll tell you which one's number one. But unless it really benefits them, they keep all of that information really secret. Which shows are actually doing well, which shows are actually doing poorly. And in order for us to get any sort of incentive to do well, any incentive to commit to streaming movies, or movies that will go to streaming, as most movies eventually will, we need backend. We need some way of getting compensated if our movie goes to streaming. Otherwise, it's just Netflix and Disney Plus throwing up their hands and being like, well, it's streaming, so... And they don't give us anything. So, that's the very long explanation as to why we're probably going into a strike, and as a result, everybody is trying to cram in as many projects as is humanly possible before the strike happens. Um, the last time any of y'all probably would have heard of a strike was in 2009? Yep. Yep. 2009? Yeah. The 2009 writer strike, which is what produced um, really weird, quirky things like Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, which was made during a time during the writer strike to prove that we could do something outside of a studio. Because we were striking, no writers were working for any studios. As a result, we had a lot of free time on our hands. And some of us, not all of us, but a very select some of us had money to make something fun. The rest of us starved. Um, so we're all trying yeah we're all trying very hard to make sure we have those projects locked down so we can already be working on things contracts are already signed before the strike happens because once the strike happens there's no new work yeah and uh, uh the last big writer strike was the 09 one that was when um quantum of solace it's one of the like the the, the uh, i'm reminded of it not just because i'm a james bond fan but because like that was one of the big parts of the daniel when daniel craig exited bond everyone was like and don't forget he also wrote a bond movie because none of oh he wrote he that? helped to write it he, they they had a rough idea the writers were just able to hand over to the director this is our rough idea for the beats and keep in mind this was a sequel this was the direct sequel to casino royale there had never been a sequel mm -hmm. like there had never been a direct bond sequel before and so this was very bold territory. And they're like, okay, here's the story beats, but the strike starts tomorrow. We can't actually give you scenes, essentially. I'm somewhat oversimplifying. Mm -hmm. So the director, whose name I don't remember, and Daniel Craig sat down to basically try to write these into actual scenes. And it shows. My gosh, it shows. Ooh. Like when, when I rewatch Daniel Craig Bond films, I watch Casino Royale and I skip to the final scene of Quantum of Solace. <laughs> because the, the, it's the only good one. It's the only one you really need, and it's just like I'm just like this is this is writers. You you need writers, you you need good <laughs> writers because the Bond writing. I mean, Bond has Purvis and Wade. They normally write all the Bond movies, and they have since I think 
Timothy Dalton. They've been doing it for a very long time. And they're not always great, but they're at least, you know, a known entity. There's a consistency to them. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, this is what happens when you have a movie that, like, like you have a franchise built on a team of writers being able to produce something, and you could tell, like, they they were up a creek. <laughs> they were up a certain creek without a paddle. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, this is our every three years we have to do a little song and dance. The hope is that we don't have to strike. The hope is that we can reach an agreement with the studios before that happens. The hope is that we get SAG and, and the other unions on our side here because actors get hurt in this too. Um, other parts of the industry get hurt in this as well when they can't have back end because of streaming. Um, the other thing that I'm hoping we get is getting paid if we have to pitch again. Uh, we frequently pitch on projects, which means we have to have the whole story, the entirety of what we think we're going to do with it, completely plotted out. This is something that takes weeks of time. We're doing it for free just for the chance of getting the job. Frequently, we get told no, and that's two weeks down the toilet. Uh, but sometimes we get, hey, that's a really cool idea. Could you do like these two things to it or could you tweak it in this direction? So we'll take another couple weeks of our time and then pitch it again and then eventually still get told no. And all of that is for absolutely zero pay. Uh, so what we're hoping to get is that if you ask us to pitch again per your notes, then you have to pay us. I, mean, I think that sounds great. I think that sounds that sounds work. great. The, the the I I have a bit of a dumbfounded look on my face just because like that's that's essentially how academic publishing works. And I'm like, is it just writing? Does writing just suck? Is is that what? Doesn't matter if you're creative writing like you do or scientific writing like no, I write, do. No, writing does suck because everybody assumes they can do it. It's not like being a plumber where somebody like literally can't be a plumber. It's like anybody can open a word document and start typing out words. So it's there's this misconception that like, oh, anybody can do it. Daniel Craig can do it. Somebody else can do it. You know, this is easy. And it's not. It really is not. Because as you would know, writing academic papers, there is structure, there is research, there is oh. so much extra there. And there is just the mind game of having to stare at the blank page and like create something out of nothing, which sounds very woo woo, but it's a it's a real thing. It's a real thing that people struggle. To oh, face. it absolutely. Some real. of us. It's absolutely have, yeah. having having moved from being a primarily creative writer in high school and college, and now being post grad school. Like my writing is all scientific. Like, and teaching people to write scientifically, even good undergrads. Like they don't they don't write good. No no undergraduate in my memory has written something um, publication worthy off the bat, mm -hmm. which makes sense. There are rules that they have to learn. But even like uh, I have a paper that's going out for review, God willing, next week. I wrote it with an old student, now a very close friend of mine, and we both like had a. We both were basically just. We didn't have a Google Doc. We're doing that next paper, but like we were both like on Zoom, just kind of looking at the blank page, going, "Okay, we've done the experiment. This is actually a really neat experiment, a really neat study. These are really neat findings. Why are we both scared to actually type anything?" <laughs> Like, <laughs> and we have something far more tangible than you do in that sense, right? You're having to sell an idea. We're like, no, there are statistics that you can't you can't bitch about those, right? You're here to like present something that is already done. Yeah, this is boring um, scientific. No, no, but like, if you use a word of more than three syllables, you might get yelled at by some editor or accused of not being a native English speaker, which oh happens at an embarrassing number of oh, times. Oh, it's it's really? a, it's, a, it's a trend in scientific writing is like. So like, I've been told even in my reviews 
uh, that I, you know, like this is this is inappropriate use of the English language, and I'm like, it is absolutely not. Uh, maybe you should. <laughs> I feel like that's just an editor. Maybe thing. you should use translation <laughs> services <laughs> like, and, and have it put into your native language. Uh, but yeah, no, like I, I'm beginning to wonder if it's just writing in general is just kind of exploitative, and we should all yell at someone. I don't know. Yeah, who who's in charge over here? Figure it out. We'll yell at them. Um, but do you have a catch for? I us? have a couple. Um, it's the time I could do go with the easy one because it's like I'm about to enter finals week. But in all honesty, the thing that's kind of currently harshing my buzz. Um, if there's a series that I have been a fan of longer and harder than James Bond, it's Indiana Jones. Like I learned how to crack a bullwhip because of Indiana Jones. I own. You know how to crack a yeah, bullwhip. Yeah, I know how to crack a bullwhip. <laughs> yeah, I'm not great at it. <laughs> I, do you have a bullwhip? I do not anymore. I probably I I might get. But you did. I did. I did point. at one point. It wasn't a very good nice. one. It was a little. It was very cheap. I would if I were going to get another bullwhip, I'd probably drop a couple hundred on it just to make sure you get something. But I know a lot about bullwhips to the point that like I forget that like there are there are certain connotations to bullwhips that I always forget. I was gonna say yeah, whips and chains <laughs> excite me. That sort of thing. Yeah. And it's like, although I feel like I feel like a bullwhip kind of crosses the line into like that's no longer a fun kind of pain. That's just pain. Not that we're going to get into a deep discussion of kink right now. Because Please, I don't want to. Um, I refuse. Let's not do that. <laughs> it's Christmas. Oh no! Someone's going to make a Christmas version of Fifty Shades of Grey. It's going to happen. Hallmark, do it. No, kinky Christmas movie. Do it. I know multiple Hallmark writers. It'll be like. <laughs> They have more than one writer. Oh, they do. No, they have a bunch. And they're all like really, really, they excel at pushing out the formula that is Hallmark and then experimenting a little bit within that. That's actually a whole nother thing that came up. I'm so sorry. This is becoming such a long episode. Eh. That's another thing that came up recently with Hallmark is that the former president of Hallmark recently quit and started his own alternative like family holiday movie channel. Because Hallmark has started to feature uh, people of color and um, LGBTQ families or like families that don't look white and traditional. And he is just very not about that. <laughs> My pillow presents <laughs> a Christmas miracle. So he's gone off to like a completely different company. Or he started his own company to pursue like what he feels Hallmark movies really should be because Hallmark is starting to experiment a little too much with the very rigid formula they have. Which is just hilarious to me because like the Hallmark channel at one point in time, like in the 90s and 2000s, they were doing some pretty transgressive. They re Hallmark channel remade The Lion in Winter. With Patrick's, did they wouldn't remake it. It's a stage play. So they did another filmed version of The Lion in Winter starring Patrick Stewart. And the very first scene, which I did not expect from a Hallmark channel when I was watching it. But like I was doing a, uh, I was in a homeschool co-op class and we're talking about plays. And I'd wa I'd already watched the, um, I'd watched the classic version with Peter O'Toole. So I was like, oh, I'll watch this other version and I'll just compare them because my teacher told me I can't talk about this thing I wanted to talk about because, again, I was 16 and I liked being edgy and pissing people off. And the first, like, literally, I'm like, ah, oh, Patrick Stewart. Yes, yes, yes. Totally topless woman. 
Holy cow. Wait, on the Hallmark Channel? On the Hallmark Channel. Wait, when was, what year was this movie I made? I don't know, 2002, 2001? Oh my, wait, that late? Yeah. They're all, re- mm. yeah, yeah, wow. indeed. Weird. Indeed. Hallmark is, Hallmark right. is all things to all people. Uh, I, I know we were talking about, you know, what defines a Christmas movie, but I'm starting to wonder if we should have a discussion about what defines the Hallmark channel. <laughs> how, how, how much nudity is there before? <laughs> uh, anyway, Mike Fetch, very, very short one, basically. Huge Indiana Jones fan. Dial of Destiny trailer has dropped. I am apprehensively enthusiastic. I, I do think Harrison Ford's a little old, and I'm kind of wondering why this movie had to be made. But I want to be happy. I want to I want to be excited for this film. There's so much to be excited for this film. Oh, it looks it looks gorgeous. Well, Han, Hans, like, okay, there's a couple CGI shots in the trailer, I will admit, that looked terrible. There were a couple of shots that I was like, yeah, no, not, not a huge Fix fan this, of please. this. But there are, I miss the, like, adventure look, if that makes sense. No, I miss it totally all the, does. like, this oh shoot the fact that we were talking about bullwhips earlier i was gonna be like i miss all like the rich brown tones and like the like everything being made of leather that i realized that was gonna sound really weird waka waka (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no i i i really i'm i'm gonna be cautiously optimistic for it but everything every because phoebe waller bridge is involved everyone's like this is just gonna be woke trash and i'm like you have no evidence it's fully possible it might be. But she was on the last um she was on the last bond too. And that was pretty good. And her philosophy of how to write bond as bond shouldn't change. He should just how the how his foibles are depicted should change. I think is great. Mm-hmm. Matt's Mickelson, yeah. amazing. The director is the same person who did Logan. I think it'll be a great film. Um and people are already oh, yeah. dismissing at the very least it has potential and people are just already dismissing it. And I'm like, can we just not like Politics is already so crappy there, right now. Like we ha- we have there is nothing in the trailer to indicate that it's going to be bad. <laughs> like I I have inside like I, I the insider track is that I've heard it had I heard it had a pr- troubled production. I heard it had a lot of reshoots. So I do know that. In the same yeah, way, like Solo had a lot of that. Solo had a whole like director shift. I don't know what happened with this one, but I heard it was. They like they were struggling with it late in the game, not working. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to be bad. It just means that it definitely had trouble getting there and may still be in trouble as it's trying to get there. We don't know where we're at there. Um, but I did also hear John Williams premiere the new theme for Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, I didn't hear it in person. I listened to a video recording of it, but oh my gosh, beautiful beautiful like so many things to be excited about so many things to be excited about and everyone's choosing to be negative and that pisses me off so all right but christmas movies specifically home alone which aaron has not seen before this was his first time seeing it i may have overhyped it well no. i'm sure society Soci- has overhyped it <laughs> it's society let's let's, society. let's blame society <laughs> faith lobbying for the first female joker here uh, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I went into Home Alone with, I, I did have expectations. It's such a well-known film. Um, I, I, I Also a John Williams score. Yeah, the, the score was way too good for the movie it was attached to. I like Chris Columbus as a director. I like a lot of his movies. Uh, Chris Columbus, with John Williams especially, has produced, you know, Harry Potter. Harry Potter films. Yeah. And you can see why they chose him for that. I'm pretty sure Home Alone was before. It was... 
significantly before, yes. Yeah, and you can tell. You can tell how they picked him because, like, there's early on that sense of, and, and Krampus does this too, but, like, that whole somebody made a Christmas wish that's kind of angry and then we're going to do this like and and we're going to get this feeling that magic is happening. Chris Columbus with John Williams manages that so well, that sense of like, oh, we're elevating this moment so it's more than coincidence. We're elevating it to a sense of of the magical. Columbus is really good, I think, at Mm because let's just take it for granted. John Williams can make anything whimsical. But this is true. Chris, John Williams can make anything sound pretty good. But Chris Columbus, I mean, any good, you know, the, John Williams has done scores that are okay, but or even really good, but that were paired with eh movies that don't get remembered quite the same way. He's also paired. He's also done scores that are so amazing they elevate the kind of crappy movie they're with, like Hook. And I do love the movie Hook. It's not a good movie, but John Williams' score is one of the reasons. With Columbus and williams together i think there's such a wonderful sense of whimsy in some scenes that otherwise would not have it (laughs) right because the thing with both harry potter and um home alone is that you're dealing with a lot of child actors and they are not good i mean no no offense to any of them any of the actors in either movie but child actors at a certain age it is difficult for them to give a sincere performance because they don't they aren't able to handle acting on the same level that an adult does there's a sense in which sometimes they are more sincere than adults and that's a wonderful effect if you can get it but frequently they are overacting like if you see a child actor acting you can tell there are multiple moments where in harry potter where you can tell this is an actor a child actor doing what they think is acting yep and you have to be able to edit around it. You have to be able to write around it. You have to be able to score around it to make that feel sincere, even when it's very patently not. Yeah, uh, and th- there's a lot about Home Alone, like you're mentioning, things with the score. I, I don't want to call it higher level because that, that, that implies hierarchy. Uh, but direction and production work uh, to, to make up for some flaws of children's uh, being involved in the show or being involved in the movie, like being the exact center of the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, but I don't think I've seen a single Christmas movie where I haven't entered relatively skeptical because I didn't celebrate Christmas till I was nineteen. Props for being Jewish, but some of them I'd entered into. I, I can be I can be won over by movies that I'm like, what the hell, and then I go in and I'm like, that was magical. Uh, I, I'll tell you point blank, my favorite Christmas movie really hands down is klaus on netflix oh the animated film yes animated that's film a, with that's um, a really nice one i like that uh, with uh G- the guy who played J. jonah jameson i can't remember his name right now um remember. um jk simmons jk simmons yeah you want to hear jk simmons as father christmas it's it's really great it's it's one of those movies that really proves like when you're feeling disappointed with the disney's and the dreamworks of the world movies like that give me hope um klaus folks if you haven't seen it it does fall into the origins of christmas subgenre of christmas movies but it is so charmingly animated go go watch it go oh, watch it go support some animators who don't work at disney 
it, it genuinely made me like feel things and tear up. And I went in like watched it a few for the first time when it first came out a few years ago. And my wife was like, you know, I want to watch a Christmas movie. My life, my life, my wife loves. There we go. My wife loves Christmas. I was like, sure, whatever. Did not expect to like it. Just and it's fell delightful. in love with it. Thought it was so sweet. And there's so much to love about it. Like the animation, the depiction of Sami people. So. I, I, I don't just watch Christmas movies intent on hating them. Um, I can be won over. But <laughs> that being it, said. That being said. Home Alone, I went into expecting to like. I like John Williams. I like Chris Columbus. I like violence. I like action movies. <laughs> I like Joe. In fact, I love Joe Pesci. Uh, I, I, I like... I really tried. I really tried. For me... Breaking my heart, man. Breaking I don't think it's bad. Heart. It's not a bad movie. But for me, it kind of proves that... So like what, what I think makes a Christmas movie... I think Christmas movies are democratic. I think people collectively, we decide as a society, a movie is a Christmas movie or it isn't. And I think a huge part of that is nostalgia. Because, for example, White Christmas, the song, still can mm-hmm. still the best-selling Christmas song of all time. The movie skirts not being a box office bomb, and a lot I of people there was a movie exactly. People liked the liked the song, didn't like the movie, even though the movie is. The Although I would the song argue exists. that doesn't make it not a Christmas movie, it just makes it no, not no, no, a it doesn't. It, it doesn't. But it's. It, I think there's such a democratic process uh, involved in what makes Christmas movies and what gives them their status, right? Home Alone, collectively, a lot of people really like. I do think there's a lot of nostalgia. I mean, I don't think. It's it's not debatable. There's a ton of nostalgia behind this movie. Oh, yeah. Pre-9-11 airplane travel. Where you could just <laughs> rush onto a flight, just run through the airport directly onto the plane. Miss a whole ass child. <laughs> nobody cares. Just throw your children in coach. Like, like, ah, screw them kids, man. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of nostalgia for, I mean, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I will. I didn't realize it was a Home Alone related shtick until I watched this movie. I, again, really wanted to like it. I'll start with the things I liked. Loved Catherine O'Hara. Like, mm. 1990, or I guess they filmed this in 89. 1989, Catherine O'Hara. Just peak Catherine O'Hara. That's like, the mom, right? Yes. Uh, I thought she was the only adult in the movie I was even remotely interested in, except for Uncle Frank. I, I wanted <laughs> Uncle to see, Frank is a jerk. I wanted to see something horrible happen to him. I, I wanted I wanted a mime to beat him to death with a baguette and just on the streets of Paris. There's always a horrible uncle. Like, there's always, in any large family, there's a horrible uncle. Like, Krampus also has a horrible uncle. Who was also bald and overweight. Like, it's just, there are very There's always a bald, sticks. overweight, horrible uncle. It's, I guess. It's, it's wild. There are all the typical things you could say, like, wow, these people are loaded. Um, I wish I lived in their house. I think that the Again, biggest. Pre 9 11, pre stock market crash, pre a lot of things. Pre however many supposedly once in a lifetime economic crises millennials have lived through. Yeah. The thing I liked the most, 
like genuinely brought a tear to my eye was Robert Blossom as Old Man Marley. Like the entire Old Man mm, Marley story. That is such a necessary part. Like you don't think it is because if you think about it, you could probably cut that out of the movie and like it doesn't kill you, right? Like the plot of it the doesn't, movie mostly continues. On paper, on paper, I don't think it kills anything. Right, except that he comes at the end, and, and you know, spoilers for a movie that's 32 years old. ancient. But, you know, Old Man Marley is the one who comes and saves Kevin right near the end. And there is a little bit of that, like, there's always a little bit of like a just-in-time luck factor that adds an extra bit of magic to a Christmas movie because, like, that gives you that sense of, like, oh, there's something, again, like that moment near the beginning, there is a sense of something larger than this. That some he would show up just in time. There was no logical reason he would show up right at that moment. No, there isn't in this fear and in, in the internal logic of the movie, but you don't question it in the moment. Exactly. So the fact that he does show up and it's complete, it, it's it's literally. I, I hate to compare this to to Lord of the Rings, but it's the Eagles are coming. <laughs> it's it's literally the Eagles are coming moment. It's what um, Tolkien talks about as as I think eudaimonia is the word that he uses. It's that unexpected grace. You catastrophe. You catastrophe. Right, not eudaimonia. Eudaimonia um, is. We're such nerds, guys. You um, <laughs> catastrophe is the happy, the happy accident, the the thing yeah. that swoops in last minute to save you, even though there was absolutely no reason it should. Mm-hmm. That gives you that sense of there is something larger at at work in this world. There is a larger force at work in this world that is benevolent. And if we, if it in placed in the right movies, it really works. For me, actually, I wasn't even thinking of of him saving Kevin. I was thinking of the scene where Kevin escapes from Joe Pesci, and I forget the other actor's name, Marv. Uh, <laughs> and they don't he runs yell in, his name enough times in the movie for you. <laughs> he runs into the church, and Old Man Marley is watching his oh, granddaughter, yeah. and like that's the that's possibly I, the best scene in the movie. Oh, I think it's I think it's hands down the best scene in the movie. It's I that think it's, and the scene at the end where he's hugging his daughter and he waves to Kevin from across the street and you're just like sobbing. Yes, but I think I think in terms of acting and writing and even the way it's shot, like Macaulay, it's it's a scene that lets Macaulay Culkin play to his strengths as a then ten year old actor, mm-hmm. but Robert Blossom gets to carry so many big moments and so many like implications in that. Like, well, you know, like you watching it as an adult. Especially, you know, watching it as a 30-year-old as, you know, as my daughter's <laughs> napping. Uh, the way he talked about the estrangement with his son, I just thought was so perfect. Like, it's, it's clear it's so something wonderful. bad happened. It's wonderful because it's vague. And mm-hmm. it, like, makes sense that it's vague because he's talking to a child about it. But it allows you as an audience member to fill in, like, every family member you struggle to hang out with at christmas every family member you avoid you can encapsulate that in this moment yeah and especially if you ever had a big fight with somebody you used to be close to i i just thought it was such a it was a truly beautiful moment and it works as a beautiful reflection of what kevin as a child is doing right now what he's going through right now which is he's had a big falling out with his family and it sounds yeah. like it's been a sort of falling out that's been going on for a while. Everybody views him as a nightmare. And the older I get as I watch this movie, the more I'm like, yeah, he kind of is. Like, he's okay. definitely a little bit of a nightmare kid. That brings me to why I didn't like this. There are two primary reasons okay. I didn't like this movie. And <laughs> the first of them is I hate everyone, even Catherine O'Hara. 
in this. I no, I actually okay. I thought I hated Catherine O'Hare. I started to relate to her the last time I watched this was like a couple years ago, because I have seen this now. Like for my friends who are now moms, they're all wonderful, great people. But there was a point at which too many things have happened, too many things are stressful, and you just you just snap, and you know you messed up. Like there's a moment after Kevin slams the door and she said everything she said, where you know she regrets what she said. And it was, it's such a relatable mom moment where I'm like, yep, I've seen that. That's fair. That's fair. And honestly, if everyone else were realistic levels of human. Of mean. <laughs> it would be one of those. It would be a great example of, yeah, everyone says things they regret and they have a difficult mm-hmm. child, yada, yada, yada. The children in this movie there's a scene towards the horrible there's a scene at the end where they're like like whatever the hell kevin's brother buzz biff bucko <laughs> it's definitely a biff type bullfrog whatever the hell his name is he and and somebody who i only realized in that scene was oh that's kevin's sister like like oh is he okay and i'm like oh don't try to sell me that you're human beings with feelings they okay. are all hideous children like brats children are kind of hideous though like and so and i the movie is done from kevin's perspective so i think there's a little bit of license in making that come out extra hideous and he's also horrible they they pull no punches he is no angel child and i appreciate the movie for that this is not a case of some like sweet innocent put upon like i think if that movie were made today it would have been a sweet innocent put upon child and not like a little you know dennis the menace which is kind of what he is. I, I couldn't connect with Kevin. I couldn't, even from his perspective, I'm like, okay, but you're being a brat. So I understand why your mom's telling you to get the hell into the attic because she just can't cope with you anymore. Mm-hmm. Your siblings are all terrible. There, there wasn't, they didn't even set up like, I'm like, why does he, where did he learn to do what he does in the scenes that everyone actually knows from the movie, which is <laughs> like, full-on rube goldberg machines and things that like there's a youtube video a coroner reviews home alone definitely would recommend oh i've seen that the number of ways like the paint cans alone like the paint can swing alone uh that's that's an internal decapitation it makes it makes way more sense as a child like if it was an adult doing those things i would be like the monster but if it's a child and they grew up with cartoons they grew up watching like Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner do this to each other all day. So of course the things they come up with have like absolutely no regard for the neither life nor limb of these criminals. Because one, they're assuming these criminals are going to kill them. So they have no reason to not go all out. They're children. They're terrified. Right. This is a child and, and he genuinely thinks that like he's under threat here. And he is. Um, and he doesn't know anything about pulling a punch because there's no cartoon where people pull punches like maybe today maybe honestly i'm a little frustrated at how disney movies like lack villains today but especially back then it was like you go all out you literally blow up your opponents with dynamite from the acme store they are cartoonishly horrific because this is a child if it were an adult this would be a saw movie uh, and I guess that's the thing, though, is I still don't know where he learned this, and it didn't occur to me. I, I, I was just sitting there, like, it didn't occur to me he learned this from cartoons because he, ha- he has, like, a prep scene. It's like watching Skyfall or Rambo. Like, okay. he, he does things with intent and purpose. When I saw that scene in Skyfall, I thought of Home Alone. 
Of course, I have the reverse effect because you saw Skyfall first. I saw Home Alone first. I saw them preparing that scene, and like little happy John Williams Christmas music started playing in my head. (laughs) As as Judy Dench puts a light bulb with screws into a socket. Yes, yes. As she does that, I was just, you know. Yeah, I. I, I guess the other thing for me is like it, it seemed very unwilling to commit to the idea that the robbers were monsters. Like Joe Pesci's just kind of funny and like, oh yeah, look at look at him, look at him with his little thing. Oh, like it's Joe. He has a little gold tooth. Isn't that cute? And Marv is downright. Marv is likable. He's, he's made... likably stupid. He's so fun. He and I'm like, I do oh. think Joe Pesci would be a little bit menacing if if he didn't have Marv to like temper him. They were very he good. Made, that that is that is true. I think they also could have let Pesci be a lot more menacing. Uh, having like things like Goodfellas, The Irishman, Pesci can be terrifying. He was plenty menacing when I was a child. Okay, that's fair. I'm thirty. Like growing up watching this movie, he was plenty menacing enough. <sighs> Like an adult, when you're a child, an adult giving you a weird look and a wink, that's we that's threatening. Fair. I mean, look, as an adult, that's still threatening. <laughs> I, I guess for me, like, okay, they didn't sell either of these guys as villainous enough for me to want to watch this stuff happen to them. Because even though some there's Looney Tunes logic to this, Mm-hmm. The way it's depicted is not Looney Tunes. It did not make me go, oh, I'm watching a cartoon. Because Joe Pesci's hand burns like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Everything in this review is, it's like, it's rhyming. It's like poetry. But like, it, it, it is a horrifying mark on his hand. The mm-hmm. iron leaves a mark on Marv. You know, it, there's just so like. <laughs> there's a there's a scene where he literally you watch the nail go into Marv's it's the full, foot. Um, a quiet place moment. Which yes. okay, again, I had that reverse effect. I was watching a quiet place and I thought of Home Alone again. I was just I was I was sitting there. I, I think I literally like I upset my child. Like I was watching this. She had got I paused it. <laughs> I'd gotten her up from her nap. She was over playing with her stackers, and I made some sort of noise, and she like gave me a glare, like Father, I am trying to stack things. Like I was just like, no. At the that movie- one I do. That one I do feel like goes too far. Like I think there's a there should be a general rule in comedic violence where blunt force trauma is completely is fine. Any sort of blunt force trauma generally is fine. Hit somebody on the back of a with, of the head with a frying pan or the paint can, whatever. Fine. We don't care because it's we can kind of like get away with the idea that they were just bruised. Pierce them with an ob like with a sharp object though. That's different. That's that's drama stakes and not comedy stakes. We are talking thirty three point three percent of a crucifixion here. <laughs> like this is just this is bad. No. Okay. The, this is violence, and it's not cartoon. Because like, yeah, okay. You watch the Three Stooges. They run a saw down Curly's head. Real life, that would be horrifying. We all know that, but we suspend our disbelief. But I just had so much trouble suspending my disbelief, and I watch enough dumb action movies that is, and enough slapstick comedy that's normally not a problem for me. But for whatever reason, I, I, they bore too many marks. 
the ro- I felt <laughs> bad for the robbers at the end. Oh, These poor, poor too sensitive up- for this movie. <laughs> you can't if you're gonna sell me that this is comedy, you ha- you have to lean fully into the black comedy angle, and just say yeah. But that if you're gonna do that, then I want Marvin Joe Pesci to be just the most revolting vile humans possible and i can laugh at right. them receiving their just reward but in that case it's no longer a family friendly movie it, I exactly think i'm honestly not really sure this weird... is one either i'm not sure how this <laughs> flew under the radar but it somehow did well back okay first off back then we could smoke in movies we could smoke and drink and and get really violent and it did not matter like and I don't say know one f word in a pg even pg movies back then had f words in them like monster exactly uh, not Monster High, the Monsters Ball. Uh, no, the movie where v- Dracula and Frankenstein come back to attack. I don't know. Point B. One. There's a Halloween movie that has the F word in it. And I'm like, this is really? PG. Huh. Yeah. Wild. Um, but like, I mean, okay. If you're if you're looking for like, what's the barometer for violence back then? Like, you can go back to even further back. You have like the Great Mouse Detective, which is an old Disney film that is like horrifically violent. Someone's drink gets drugged at a bar, like. They're all mice, but there is some horrific violence. There's a lot of smoking. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of like shady stuff that would never be allowed in a G-rated movie today. I think our tolerance for violence was just a lot higher back then. <laughs> huh. I love Great Mouse Detective. If you haven't seen it, it's a, I it's have, a fun one. Yeah. I actually or also I actually hated it because it uh, did not. Uh, when I saw it, I was like for the first time I was like twelve, and it was not faithful. Are you being like a Sherlock Holmes purist or something? No, there's a book series it's based on the Great Mouse oh, Detective yeah. book. With Basil very sweet illustrations. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, they're very they're very cute. So I was they're just extremely like, cute. I also, but I did like the two Radigan song. Yes, um, Radigan is great, but like there is there is some pretty serious violence in that movie. And I feel like movies back then you could get a, like, people just let more of that happen and maybe kids were just a little bit more desensitized. I don't know. I think there was a little more trust placed in children back then, if I'm being honest. I just, I don't know. It it, it was just a very- Clearly too much trust because adult Aaron is struggling with it. It was so weird to have this experience. Again, like, (laughs) I don't like a lot of Christmas movies. I've- friggin hate like for example the, the big ones i've watched that i'm supposed to have loved before were like love actually i hate that movie mm, nope not uh, a good one do not uh, like it uh, there are some very cute scenes because i like rowan atkinson and alan rickman and thomas Brody. yes Sangster, no the actors like, are stellar but like ugh, it um, sucks as a christmas movie it also sucks as a romantic movie yeah it's, it just sucks like it teaches all the wrong lessons yeah um Love, I mean, my love for them up at Christmas Carol cannot be slandered. Uh, <laughs> I, I like plenty of Christmas movies. I went into Home Alone going, yeah, this is for me. It's violent. It's basically an action movie. But the it's director, not the same kind of violent. The director, the cast, everything about this is designed to like appeal to my inner child. And I watched it and I was like, Ugh. Such a weird experience. I think it just, it doesn't fit within the genre zones that maybe you're used to that a lot of us are used to these days i think those of us who still love home alone watched it when we were kids because it doesn't fit comfortably within the types of genres we like our idea of a children's movie is far more safe now our idea of a dark action comedy is a lot darker 
So to have a movie that sort of exists in between those zones that is trying to straddle family movie and this sort of not horror, but like that, that sort of like reveling in violence type of thing, it's potentially very uncomfortable for us. Because it has that Looney Tune sensibility, but with real people. I think the only reason the violence is sort of saved for us is because Joe Pesci and I'm sorry, actor who plays Marv, you're so great and I'm forgetting your name. Um, because they sell it with a lot of very funny cartoonish reactions. Right. Like I think horror is deter or like pain and how we react to it is determined by how the characters who are experiencing it react to it. If they make a silly face and scream great it's a cartoon if they make you know if they they cry out and and in agony then we're like oh this is serious this is a drama yeah and to kind um, of i guess to conclude my thoughts about that is that i felt there was some dissonance there and that like his foot slowly goes on to the nail and i watched that and i was like ah but then but he see does, like that but that then he does me. a goofy like yeah like yeah but that's meant to be like that's a looney tunes thing right exactly that's a, how long is wiley e. coyote gonna do this thing that is clearly painful because he isn't aware that it's there yet that's the comedy of that moment wiley e. coyote never i never watched a nail go into his paw not that <laughs> i've kept... definitely seen no but i have seen tom from tom and jerry like sit on like a hot stove and not realize it was burning him for like a straight 30 seconds that's fair i just still f- i i, I think the, i I, th- I genuinely just think that like they didn't connect they didn't they they, they went too close to they, they tried to split the distance i think too much between cartoon and real life for me and that's why i don't think it necessarily worked for me personally i also have zero nostalgia for this movie because i've seen it once yesterday <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, I will say from a, from a writing perspective, I am consistently impressed with how tightly scripted Home Alone is. Right again, like with with um, old man, what's his face? Old man Marley. Marley. Like with old man Marley, like that's a storyline you don't expect to be tied into that main storyline. It's just there for effect. It's like, oh, it's the creepy old man that he's afraid of. Um, he's gonna have to learn to face his fears or something and then it comes in at a really great moment the writing in order to assure us logically that this child could get left behind for that long is impeccable like the the neighbor kid that comes and like is asking a bunch of weird questions so he ends up being part of the count the fact that they're split into two vans so each van thinks the other van has kevin yeah yeah it the fact actually, that the parents are sitting in coach or sitting sitting in first class class and the kids are sitting in the back like it's this perfect cocktail which is very much how the rest of the movie works too is like every trap every everything kevin sets up it's this perfect cocktail of stuff where there's like not a single thing extra it's all lined up in just such a way and the fun of that movie is watching all those dominoes fall right like you you go into that movie because you've heard the the name of the movie home alone you know kevin's gonna get left home alone it's not like a suspense thing are they gonna find out and the movie isn't gonna happen we know he gets home left home alone it's the fun of finding out the how and same goes like we know this is a christmas movie we know john williams is writing the score we know chris columbus is directing it we know it's a family movie so we know that like neither of these two criminals are gonna die (laughs) in this 
and we do know they have to lose. The fun is in the how. That's fair. I just... I just, I just love, I just love that the reason Aaron can't handle this movie is he's too sensitive to the violence of it. It's the because way that has never happened in the history of our friendship. <laughs> it is the way the violence is portrayed. <laughs> and speaking, I don't, I'll admit the nail thing is a bit much. Oh, it's the nail oh. thing. It's the burns. It's the fact that I now know that Joe Pesci actually got severe burns on his head from that one scene. Like. It wasn't cartoony enough for me to go into cartoon mode, and it wasn't real. And, and the two criminals weren't horrifying enough as people for me to go, "Yeah, die trash." Like that was my problem. <laughs> but speaking of uh, of uh, violence, we'll be back next time, quote unquote. Next time, as if we're not going to immediately continue this discussion. Two part episodes are fun to discuss another film that I. think think I at least found does a lot of the same things as Home Alone but I think does them in a slightly different or at least different enough way uh, that I don't know maybe 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 Facebook's get really mad at me for being a very inconsistent person I don't know <laughs> I don't know <laughs> but, well the history of the like if, if we had time we would go and do a full retrospective on like the history of violent Christmas movies, because I think that is really fun. Like the Christmas movies that have that element of quote, very not Christmas unquote to them. Um, Right. Like the diehards. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that like has that Christmas air to it, but is clearly a different kind of movie. And then we'll still try to fulfill the Christmas thing by the end. We would do a full retrospective. We don't have that kind of time. Um, So we'll see you in two weeks. So I guess my final question then for this episode is, do you think Home Alone belongs in that category? Is it a violent Christmas movie or that, you know, it's being a little bit edgy, even no, if it's, it's just not. the kids version? It doesn't fall within that category because genre wise, I don't think it's a full like if you look at movies like Krampus or Violent Night or Die Hard, those are movies meant for adults. They're playing to adults who are a little bit fed up with this, quote, childish Christmas stuff, unquote, right? So there's a very specific market they're playing towards. They are, again, counter-programming the holiday in a, in a weird sense. Whereas yeah. Home Alone very much is playing into the holiday. It's a little bit nastier than your average, like, family-friendly, you know, Christmas film. But it's about a child. There's a big family... There's sentimental music. Um, gosh, I could go for 20 minutes just on how John Williams is able to write Christmas music without actually writing Christmas music. It's really fascinating the way he writes that movie where you don't actually hear that many Christmas tunes in it from him, but everything he writes feels like Christmas. And it's instrumentation not just, is huge for that. It's not just the sleigh bells either. He creates his own Christmas hymn that is so specific, like, it's the one that goes um da 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 and it feels Christmassy, and I cannot even tell you why. It's really interesting. I'm not sure. Um, it's, it's not just that he doesn't use. I mean, he uses sleigh bells in some scenes, but he even the way the meter of the tunes he uses. I I, I do yeah. think a lot of his instrumentation, but that's again different discussion. Anyways, um, but it, it's very much 
playing into the sense that this is a family movie that we all see together. Again, it's it's unusual in some respects. It's a little bit more capery. But it lives in the same like realm as like, not that this is a Christmas movie, but it lives in like the Cool Runnings realm. Where like this is a movie the whole family is going to go see together. It's got capers, it's got physical like gaffes, it's got fun, and it's got a heartfelt center to it. I don't know what you call that genre of movies, but it very much is one of those, and not say a, a you know a Krampus. Oh, speaking of Krampus, tune in and from your perspective, listener, a couple weeks where we will be back to discuss that very movie and can probably continue our discussion of home alone a little bit too but in that uh somewhat more sinister light of that other christmas quote-unquote classic until then insert clever outro insert clever outro bye guys